Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is Monday Minute, episode 154. And normally on these Monday Minute episodes, we answer your listener questions. It's usually myself, Mark, joined by Steve. But Steve is actually out of town today, and I wanted to go ahead and record a solo Monday Minute. So we will get into some listener questions. But first things first, wanted to let you guys know that one week from today, as this episode is releasing, Exo Mountain Gear will have our once a year sale. Um, I would say for Black Friday, but the timing of that sale is going to be the Monday before Thanksgiving. So Monday, November 21st, we will be having that once a year sale. It is limited quantities and a limited time. We will be having 20% off site-wide. So that's all pack systems, accessories, logo gear, everything on the XO site will be 20% off. So because it is a limited time and limited quantities, if you don't want to miss it, make sure that you sign up to receive our emails. We'll be sending out a reminder email before the sale, and then also we'll send out an email when that sale actually begins. And again, that's Monday, the 21st of November here in 2022. So check that out if you're interested. If you want to sign up and get those emails, just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter or look for the link in the show description and we will have that link where you can sign up and get notified when that sale begins. All right, let's dive into some listener questions. This first one is about spotting scopes and in particular, Swarovski's new compact spotting scope and how it compares to some other options that we've tested. Here's this question via SpeakPipe. Hey guys, quick question for Steve. I saw on his 2022 gear list that he had the Swarovski 25 to 50 by 65 ATS spotting scope on there. Um, and I was wondering what his thoughts were on the new Swarovski ATC spotting scope and how it compares to that. I have a, an STM 65 millimeter 25 to 50 scope. Um, and I've been considering upgrading or I'm not sure if it's an upgrade, but switching out to the STC scope to see what it's like. Um, curious about your thoughts. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Thank you for that question, Andrew. Uh, great timing. Steve, along with Rob from SNS Archery, just released a video review of several spotting scopes, including the new compact Swarovski options. Uh, and if you're listening and are unaware, throwing out all these acronyms and names, the ATC and STC are new scopes from Swarovski that are meant to be minimal, backpacking friendly, lightweight, and compact spotting scopes. So the ATC is just the angled, the STC is the straight. And you can go get the full specs for those scopes as well as this review. Uh, again, I'll leave links in the show description for those, but um, this guy did direct the question at Steve and he has spent more time behind the scopes than I have. I will say I have uh, put my hands on them and spent time with them in the field as well. But um, really the answer to this question is in this review that I will link to for you guys. So it's a full in-depth review, not only of the ATC or STC in particular, but more of an updated high level comparison of most of the scopes that 
we use and recommend and that Rob through SNS Archery also offers. And so in this review, Steve and Rob do go through these new compact swirls, compare that to the ATS, which Andrew specifically asked about and which is my scope of choice and is also what Steve had taken on that sheep hunt, but also compare it to the compact Koas, uh, the 55, the 77, even the 88, some of the bigger swirl options. And so really this review is going to answer a lot of questions for you if you want to get into the nitty gritty. I will say um, from a big picture, the ATS 65, uh, as I said, is my scope of choice. Uh, You may also have heard us talk about that briefly in our recent Gear of the Year podcast. But um, yeah, pretty much Steve and I both feel it is probably the best all-around scope right now. Um, Something that, you know, they do address in that review is there's no perfect spotting scope. Um, And in a perfect world, you would be able to grab from a myriad of options, depending on the hunt, the species, the style of the hunt, etc. But for me, um, I just wanted one spotting scope that was kind of a do-it-all option um, that worked well in most circumstances had good objective, good zoom, uh, was still relatively light, relative, relatively compact, etc. And I really feel that the ATS-65, and in particular, the recent ATS-65s, which Swarovski has vaguely told us that there's been some improvements to, uh, I can't say what exactly those are, but um, it's just a great scope. I mean, it's a, the ATS has been around for quite a long time, the ATX is the newer version. Um, it's more modular, but I've spent, uh, as has Steve, um, time with the ATS and the ATX side by side. And the ATS uh, saved some weight and actually performed better um, in our experience. So um, I'm not saying it's the only good scope. The Koas are great. Uh, again, just go check out that full review. It's going to answer a lot of questions for you guys. In particular about the compact Swaros, I will say that um, I'm generally a fan of angled spotting scopes in most instances, but in that compact form factor, I do like the STC, the straight version of the new compact Swaro. Um, from a packability perspective and given the smaller size, it is easy to get behind. Um, and so if you are interested in either of these compact Swaros, the STC or the ATC, even if you're an angled guy in the past, I'd maybe consider the straight, just at least consider it. Um, if you're the guy like me who traditionally just goes straight to the angled option. So once again, check out the link in the show description for that in-depth spotting scope review. This next question came through uh, via email. And the guy said, I was wondering if you guys have any plans to go to any shows next year on the East Coast, such as the Great American Outdoor Show, or maybe a TAC event, Um, TAC being Totally Archery Challenge. He went on to say, I love the pack and would love to meet the masterminds behind it. And P.S. If you are coming out to a show, please bring Jakey Poo. (laughs) Um, So... We don't go to many shows each year, and the answer is we just don't have, um, call it the resources to do that from a, 
like time, money, and staffing perspective, XO is, you know, we're a very small company. And so if we have employees going to shows, that's literally employees who are uh, theoretically not doing their job, quote unquote. Um, But because we are small and there's just so many shows out there, we could essentially from January through March be traveling full time. Um, and then into the summer with so many shows such as the totally art, total archery challenge events, uh, we could be just traveling a lot. And that's just hard for us to do because when we are traveling, um, we are not doing our core job at XO. So we don't have any plans to be out east this year. Um, currently, we will be at the Sheep Show, which is in Reno in January. We'll also be at the Hunt Expo which is in Salt Lake City in February. We should be at the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show, uh, also in February, which is up in Portland area. And then we would love it to make more than that. I don't know what that's going to look like yet. We would love to hit one of those um, summer archery shoots, um, but that's to be seen. So for sure, right now, I would say Sheep Show, Hunt Expo, and the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show you'll be able to see us and we will, you know, continue to communicate where we'll be and when as we get closer to all those dates. But we'd love to make it out out east someday. It's just really hard for us to, uh, to get to all the places we would like to be. All right, this next question came through from SpeakPipe and is kind of about active insulation. Um, we'll get right into the question. Hey, Mark, I'd be super interested to hear a comparison of kind of active insulation layers. Uh, In your gear guide for 2022, you recommended the new Sitka Ambient that uses the um, Polartec Evolve, no, sorry, Primaloft Evolve fabric, super similar to like a Polartec Alpha. And It'd be interesting to see, like, you know, why you like that fabric better or what's what's so standout about that, Jack, or, you know, some sort of comparison for insulating active mid-layers. Doing a little bit of research myself seems that there is a couple of good options out there, stuff that uses Polartec Alpha, um, the Primaloft Next or Evolve fabric, which seems to be the same thing, and then also the... um, fabric that Kuyu uses for their active insulation, uh, the 3D EXF, um, also shared in the Patagonia Nano Air as well. So be super interested to hear what you see um, as to what your favorites are. Thanks. Love the podcast. All right. So there is a lot jam-packed into that question um, that we could talk for probably an hour about. I will try and hit some yes product specific feedback but also i just want to like back up and talk a bit high level um, because i feel that active insulation is it's a it is one of those you throw around the words technical um, as it relates to gear in particular clothing and i will say that active insulation is perhaps one of the more technical areas um where fabrics and things really make a difference. A rain gear would be another one, for example. But, you know, insulation works by trapping air. If, if we're putting on something warm, that piece of clothing is not creating any warmth. 
It is simply trapping our body warmth and keeping that body warmth close to our body and creating a barrier of sorts where warmth and our warm air is held close. Um, And so it's all about, in a way, trapping air. That's great um, for keeping warm air close, but when it comes to active insulation, and now you have movement and perspiration because we're being active, if all we do is trap air, then we're also trapping perspiration, we're not shedding moisture, um, and then we're going to get wet. Now we're wet and going to get cold, especially as we stop. And so there, I would just say there's, um, there's difficulties inherent when we put the two words active and, and insulation together, because in a way they're competing against each other in terms of performance. We want to trap air for, for insulation and we want to release or have some breathability when we're active creating excessive potential heat and therefore perspiration, etc. So the, the thing that comes into play here is having insulation that is effective at retaining warmth yet is breathable. And if we, again, keeping things very high level um, in this question, you know, is mentioned something like the Sitka ambient, uh, which as he said, is uses Primaloft Evolve. Um, and as he also mentioned, PolarTech Alpha is a essentially very, very similar um, fabric. They are, um, if you haven't seen one or handled one, they're kind of a, they're Sherpa-like fleece. So think of like the big, bigger, loftier fleeces. They're somewhat like that. Um, which again, you essentially have these fibers that are creating some, I don't use the word bulk. They're, they're creating an opportunity to hold air via these fibers and then the empty spaces between the fibers. So it's a fleece, but it's think of like a longer type fleece. If you, if you keep that on, keep that to the side, the other way that insulation is often used and is what we're all familiar with. If we talk about specifically a quote unquote puffy is either a down or synthetic fiber that also holds air but is now more of it, especially with down a loose, so goose down feathers, but even traditional synthetic insulations that may be in a puffy, um, such as apex insulation, for example, most traditional insulation pieces need a shell or a membrane to hold or contain the insulation itself. So clearly, if you had a down jacket without a shell, you just have a bunch of down feathers floating around. That's not going to work. You need a membrane to hold the insulation. Similarly, with most synthetic insulations, you need a membrane to either hold or protect that insulation. And so anytime you have a shell or a fabric or a lining holding an insulation in place or protecting that insulation, 
that shell or that fabric or that lining is inherently going to decrease breathability. And so it's a little bit, it gets tricky when you talk about this insulation is very breathable. That could be true, but what is the application of that insulation? And does the application of that insulation and any shell or fabric or whatever around it then decrease or potentially negate any breathability that that insulation itself has, if that makes sense. So one thing flipping back to something like the Sitka Ambient, um, again, Primo Loft Evolve, Polartec Alpha, etc., is you get all of the benefits of an insulation and breathability and the trapping of air but this type of insulation does not need that extra fabric or shell to hold it in place. So it's essentially like direct to skin. You still have an external shell. Um, actually, you don't always. There are garments made out of uh, Polartec Alpha that have zero shell or fabric to them. They would not work well for hunting. Uh, they would obviously be not durable, but in the case of a Sitka Ambient, I'll, we'll just focus on this one because it's what I've mentioned, it's what I've been using. There's an external shell with a, a DWR and some protection, but the insulation itself is essentially exposed on the inside, much in the way that a fleece would be. So inherently, because there's, call it only one layer or one shell, or one fabric layer in addition to the insulation itself, inherently already, it's gonna be more breathable than traditional insulation that has an inner and an outer layer protecting and holding the insulation itself. You went from one layer that decreases uh, breathability to two layers that decrease breathability. So. He mentioned something um, like the 3D FX insulation, which I do have some experience with. I think it's incredibly warm for the weight. And based on the structure of that insulation, I do think that insulation itself would do a good job with breathability. The issue is you do need a membrane, inner and outer, to hold and protect that insulation. So something um, like the Kuyu that uses 3DFX, I've used an Outdoor Vitals piece with 3DFX. Uh, as he mentioned, Patagonia has some pieces with 3DFX. Even if they don't call it that, they may call it something different. It's essentially the same thing. All of those are going to be more traditional, what we think of as like puffy layers with an inner and outer shell. And then things like the Sitka Ambient. And again, I think we're going to see a lot more pieces like this on the market. And there already are more pieces outside of the hunting world like this. Um, but there's only the single outer layer. Okay, enough lessons. What, what does that mean in practicality? The breathability and moisture management of something like the Sitka Ambient compared to something like the Kuyu Katana the Outdoor Vitals Ventus, the uh, Patagonia piece that he mentioned, I find, having used those, that beyond the theory I just described, 
the practical experience and performance for me has proven that something like the Sitka Ambient is a much more breathable. It is much more easier to manage moisture and regulate your temperature. So is it warm? Yes. And does it manage moisture better? Yes. And is it easier to wear over a day where you are sometimes mobile, sometimes not? Yes. So if you very specifically say active insulation and you want what I described earlier is going to be the best balance of two competing forces, activity and insulation, I have found that something like the Sitka Ambient is going to outperform most what I will call traditional mid-layers, especially things with an actual insulation such as 3DFX or even a lightweight down or what have you. Um, Something like a grid fleece is not the the type of insulation paradigm I just talked about, not a loose fill insulation, doesn't need two membranes, etc. And is great. And that's typically what I have worn primarily for active insulation. The Sitka Ambient or something like it takes it to the next level for me because the Ambient is warmer or just as warm. It definitely is better at managing moisture in my experience. And it is also lighter weight in general. So to compare like the Ambient to the traditional grid fleeces I have worn in past years, the ambient is going to be about four ounces lighter and just flat out in my experience perform better. So I was, you know, and this, for me, this extends beyond hunting. I was just this week, I went for a run, um, Sunday morning and it was 20 degrees and I wore a piece that was 3D FX insulation, the two layers of fabric I mentioned, the inner, the outer, etc. It was warm, but it for sure does not breathe as well. And then I just wanted that back-to-back experience, wore Sitka Ambient, same conditions, same type of effort, and it's just flat out performs better. So this is not meant to be a commercial for the Sitka Ambient, although I'm extremely happy with this piece. But to look at how the Sitka Ambient is constructed, the layers, the insulation technology, etc., and just flat out say it is not the same thing as previous types of active mid layers. It's something different for sure, just in the way it's constructed, fabrics it uses, etc. Again, I think Sitka is um you know bringing this more to the hunting market earlier pieces similar to this have existed in more outdoor brands um but again we're gonna see more and more of this stuff long story short sick ambient was on my gear of the year list for a reason um and is a fantastic piece for sure all right uh another question here that is timely at least for another couple weeks this guy was um, writing in asking about his elk hunt experience so far here in November. He said the scenario is as follows. He's in Western Montana. The unit he's hunting has fairly low population density of elk compared to a lot of other units in Western Montana, but it's right outside my back door. So I have a lot of hunting opportunity. We have 
and snow on the ground and there's more on the way. I've been putting on a ton of miles and I finally found a herd with between 20 and 30 head of elk. All but two were cows and calves and the two bulls did not have brow tines, making them off limits for the unit I'm hunting in. My question is, do I continue to stick around this herd of cows, calves, and non-legal bulls, hoping that a legal bull joins them, or do I move on and look for a bachelor group of legal bulls? That's a good question. It's I can only answer in somewhat generalities because I clearly don't uh, I don't have any experience in his specific area, and maybe there's dynamics to this unit or to this area that would somehow differ than what is call it traditional for November elk and the experience that he's having. So the generality I would say is if you're finding a larger herd of elk that is cows and calves and perhaps younger or bulls that are not legal to you, I wouldn't necessarily hang around that herd just hoping that a legal or more mature bull shows up. It could if it needs the food source that that herd is on, but I wouldn't count on legal bulls showing up because of the dynamics of elk, meaning I wouldn't say, oh, here's cows. The legal bull is going to come and check these cows or what have you. As you get later into November, that's just generally not the case. Um, The bulls this time of year tend to isolate. They tend to have left larger herds, uh, find pockets of seclusion and security, and they're really trying to conserve energy and be on a food source where they can kind of prepare for the winter. And so usually the strategy is you may be seeing a ton of elk, but if there's no legal or mature bulls, you need to move on and find an isolated pocket that is going to hold a bowl or perhaps a couple bowls that are kind of in the area together. But it it can be tough to locate these bowls. They're smart. They're clever. They will find pockets that make them tough to see at times or tough to hunt at times. But again, they're looking for seclusion, security, and food. And if they can get into a small pocket of security and food and they don't have to move, they're not going to. They're going to hang low. They could be up feeding quite a bit during the day, but only within this secluded pocket. And so again, those are generalities, not always the case. Maybe based on food sources, you will see some bulls show up. Um, maybe some, man, maybe some very packed snow will push some bulls around or push them down to where this herd is. I'm not saying it can't happen, but if I was in this guy's shoes, I wouldn't just hang around the herd and wait and hope. I would try to look for some areas that provide cover and security and a food source for bulls in particular. And sometimes these are small pockets. And yeah, you just, a lot of times it it does take work for sure. And I'm not the most experienced late season hunter, but again, these are general things to look for and to consider. 
All right, so to wrap up, this question came through and said, since Mark is such a fan of his 7 Psalm, which is the 7mm short action Ultramag, which is a cartridge I shoot, he said, I was wondering what he thought of the new 7mm PRC. It appears that the 7 PRC could be even better than the 7 Psalm. Good question. Um, there has, if you're at all involved or pay attention to the world of rifles and cartridges, you've no doubt seen the release of the 7 Psalm here over the last few weeks, or sorry, the 7 Psalm, the release of the 7 PRC over the last few weeks. Um, this was not a surprise. The, the SAMI specs of the 7 PRC have been published for months now. Everyone, you know, who cared to really like get into all the nerdery knew that this was coming um it is hmm again we could talk for an hour here here's what i'll say the 7 prc is going to be great for factory rifles and factory ammunition and is a modern seven millimeter rim mag of sorts. Does the seven PRC make other seven millimeter cartridges, whether that's the seven rim mag, the seven SOM, does it make those obsolete? Is the seven PRC leaps and bounds better? No, not in and of itself. Again, the strength of the seven PRC is it is going to be a great cartridge. It's going to be consistent and accurate and give great performance from a ballistics perspective. Marginally better than some of the options that are out there now, perhaps. But again, the biggest strength here is that all of this is done off the shelf. It's done in factory rifles and with factory ammunition. So something like the 7 Rim Mag, which has clearly been around for a long time, a perfect example of this is with modern higher BC bullets, the SAMI specs for a 7 Rim Mag rifle, it just has too slow of a barrel twist to take full advantage of all these modern higher BC bullets. If you were to go and build a custom 7 millimeter Rim Mag, you could choose a faster twist rate. You could optimize the chambering for modern bullets. You can reload and come up with modern powders, some great performance with the 7 Rim Mag that will mimic and be very close to the 7 PRC in terms of just the paper numbers, meaning pushing X bullet this fast. But again, off the shelf, the 7 PRC will outperform a 7 rim mag. And again, the strength is going to be off the shelf. 7 PRC rifles with a good twist rate and 7 PRC ammunition using modern bullets, modern powders, that is going to be fantastic. So it's the 7 PRC is going to be great. It just doesn't crush the competition. It doesn't negate something like the seven Psalm, which this person in particular is asking about and which I love.
The seventh Psalm though is perfect scenario. Sorry. Perfect example of you need to build a rifle for a seventh Psalm and you need to reload for the seventh Psalm. Seven PRC is going to do a lot of similar things off the shelf. Now there, there are more differences, right? So a seven Psalm can run in a short action. Seven PRC is going to be long action only. Um, seven rim mag, long action magnum with a belted case, seven PRC, long action magnum, non-belted case. So we, yes, we can like talk again for an hour about all the nitty gritty differences. I'll just say that the seven PRC is great if you are looking for a seven millimeter rifle in the future, and it's going to be great to have incredible factory offerings. But if you're shooting a seven Psalm like I am, if you have a seven rim mag that you love, et cetera, et cetera, the seven PRC didn't all of a sudden make those obsolete. Um, you could also throw in the 28 Nosler in there, right? The seven PRC, some people may be theoretically disappointed that it doesn't compete with the 28 Nosler. Again, their paper specs in terms of is a cartridge better because it can push a bullet faster? I would argue no. In fact, often their trade-offs of pushing the same bullet faster are come with negative consequences. Those negative consequences could be many things. It could be recoil, could be barrel life, etc. Another thing that gets overlooked with pushing a bullet faster is there's downsides to doing that with shorter range shots. So let's pick the 175 grain ELDX. It's a very popular seven millimeter hunting bullet. And we could say that a seven Psalm, like my seven Psalm, for example, can push that right about 2,900 feet per second. Let's say the seven PRC is gonna push it at 3,000 feet per second and a 28 Nosler is gonna push it even faster. Okay, so is the 28 Nosler best? If you only care about speed, maybe. But when it comes to what if you have a 50 yard or 100 yard or 200 yard shot, which it's easy to talk about long range capability, but how many shots end up being sub 400, call it. There are trade-offs to pushing certain styles of bullets too fast. You push a bullet like the ELDX too fast for a closer encounter, and you can have some negative performance characteristics of that bullet. I actually really like the idea of my 7 Psalm and even the short 7 Psalm that I'm currently building, pushing that same bullet and not starting it too fast. One of the strengths of 7 millimeters and especially the modern IRBC 7 millimeter bullets is their efficiency and retained speed velocity downrange. And so perfect example if i shoot let's say in my 18 inch 7 psalm i don't have it yet it's getting built let's say i only start that at 2750 which i should be able to do conservatively but let's say i only started at 2750 i like that for a closer range shot it's not going too fast it's not going to have too much explosive energy compared to pushing that thing 3000 plus but, and here's where like 
a bullet, for example, just to pick on this one because we're talking about it, a bullet like the ELDX that's high BC is so efficient downrange is that even if I only start that bullet at 2750, it's carrying 1800 feet per second at nine at more than 900 yards still. So if we talk minimum expansion velocity and are relatively conservative with 1800 feet per second, my seven, my short 18 inch seven psalm that only started at 2750 is theoretically still terminally capable beyond 900 yards. I have zero interest in shooting an animal at that distance, like zero interest. But a short seven psalm could do it. So is the seven PRC better because it can start it faster? And is the 28 Nosler even better because it can start it even faster? I'll let you decide. But what is the difference between having this minimum expansion velocity at 925 yards or stretching that to 100 or 150 yards greater, right? Like, at what point do you say, yeah, 925 is enough, I don't need it to go 1,050 or 1,100? So that's where it be, you begin to see how these modern high efficient, particular seven millimeter high BC bullets just perform and hold energy and speed so well. Now, the other thing is this isn't just terminal um, expansion velocity, wind drift begins to matter. But again, because these bullets are so efficient, the wind drift is also relatively negligible. So if we were to look at, um, say at 600 yards, Let's go with my current seven psalm, which is a 22 inch barrel. And I push the 175 ELDX at 2,900 feet per second. At 600 yards, there's 2.1 MOA of drift, wind drift, and a 10 mile an hour direct crosswind. The seven PRC should be able to push the same bullet roughly-ish 100 feet per second faster. So it starts at 3,000 instead of 2,900. What does that do at 600 yards in the same exact wind? What is the wind drift difference? It's a tenth of an MOA. So is the 7 PRC that much better? I don't know. It's going to be a great cartridge. I love 7 millimeters. It's going to be fantastic for factory rifles. Um, it's going to be great, but so is the seven Psalm. So is the seven rim mag, etc. If you have a seven millimeter you like now, don't sell it and buy a seven PRC. If you're interested in a seven millimeter Magnum and getting into one, consider seven PRC. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be around for a long time. Hornady's going to support it. Uh, many rifle manufacturers are already on board. It's going to be good. But it doesn't change the world. Put it that way. But it's going to be great. All right, guys. That's enough for today. Thank you so much for sharing your questions. If you have any questions you want us to talk about in a future Monday Minute episode, 
send those by email or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message and you can leave us an audio message with whatever device you're using. Finally, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button to receive future episodes automatically, do that. And don't forget our once a year sale for Exo Mountain Gear kicks off next Monday, November 21st. It will be 20% off site-wide. And to sign up and get notified for that, go to exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter. Talk to you guys soon.